Roy just read through Ephesians chapter 1. Uh, and so you may notice by the end that I don't go all the way, I'm not going to preach all the way through Philippians chapter 1, excuse me. Um, I'm going to be preaching through verses 1 through 26 because the last three verses actually are part of chapter 2. Uh, whenever, whenever this was written, Paul didn't say, okay, here's Philippians chapter 1 and here's Philippians chapter 2. It's just a letter. And so this, the thought of verses 27 and on, go on into uh, chapter 2. So I want to cover that next time uh, that, that I get to preach. Um, I don't know if you saw what it was, the title was sermon in, the, in there. Uh, David was doing his best to guess what my title sermon was be, would be because I forgot to give it to him to put in there. And so, uh, so the actual title sermon that I'm titling this this morning is Joy in Christ. Um, one of the issues uh, in beginning a new sermon series or trying to look at a book of the Bible or a passage of Scripture with new, is new, looking at it with new eyes. Uh, too often we bring our presuppositions whenever we look at the Scriptures. Uh, rather than pulling out what the Scripture is actually saying, we read into the Scriptures uh, something that is not being said at all. Uh, and that more often than not, we read ourselves into the Scripture, making ourselves the hero fighting the villain, uh, when we're actually the villain fighting the hero. Uh, we have become consumers trying to find out what we can get out of the Bible to improve our life or our bank account, when we ought to be worshipers in awe of its author. Uh, we will read the Bible and pick and choose verses that we like and very often quote them out of context. <clears throat> there are many such verses that have been misrepresented by athletes and by merchandise companies in this very letter. How does this happen? Well, it happens when we read Scripture out of context. When we do just a little bit of research to better know the who, the what, the when, the where, and the why, we place Scripture back into its context and into its original context. And as a result, we get the right interpretation of Scripture and can make an accurate application for the church today. So if you will, please kindly indulge me as I take just a few minutes and lay out some history and background to give some context to this letter. And I believe that in doing so, uh, we will read this letter and understand that Paul is encouraged by the fellowship he has with this church and that the source of their mutual joy is the gospel of Christ. Let's pray. Father, I can think of no better way for you to show your power and for you to receive glory than to use a weak person like me to preach your inerrant word to other sinners. As we look into your word this morning, I ask that through the work of the Spirit of Christ in us, give us hearts to understand. Give us ears to hear and give us eyes to see just what you have for us today. In Christ's name, amen. The epistle of 
Philippians is one of Paul's prison epistles, most likely written from a prison cell in Rome. Paul authored four such epistles from a Roman prison cell. They are Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians, and the little bitty teeny tiny Philemon. Uh, As we notice from the name given to this epistle, it was written to believers in the city of Philippi. Philippi is located in northeastern Greece in the Macedonian region. And by the time of Paul arrived in this European city in 49 AD, it was already an ancient city. Philippi has its beginnings going all the way back to the 4th century B.C. Uh, In 356 B.C., Philip II of Macedon, the father of Alexander the Great, took the city and named it after himself, Philippi, the city of Philip. Philip turned Philippi into a military stronghold and took control of nearby gold mines. These mines netted him over 100 talents of gold every year. Another reason the city was very important was because it was on an important trade route to Asia. Philippi later became part of the Roman Empire when Rome defeated the Persians in 168 B.C. Philippi is where Mark Anthony and Octavian fought and defeated Brutus and Cassius, the assassins of Caesar, in, in, of Julius Caesar, uh, in 42 B.C. And later Octavian fought and defeated Mark Anthony and Cleopatra at Philippi. So by the time Paul came to the city in 49 A.D., It was very much an urban city with both Romans and Greeks living there. It was on his second missionary journey that Paul planted the church at Philippi. So turn with me to the book of Acts, chapter 16, and let's read about Paul's very first visit to Philippi and the humble beginnings of the church there. And I'm going to read the entire chapter just so we can see it all. Acts chapter 16. Paul also came to Derbe and to Lystra. A disciple was there named Timothy, the son of a Jewish woman who was a believer, but his father was a Greek. He was well spoken of by the brothers at Lystra and Iconium. Paul wanted Timothy to accompany him, and he took him and circumcised him because the Jews who were in those places, for they all knew that his father was a Greek. As they went on their way through the cities, they delivered them, uh, they delivered to them for observances uh, the decisions that had been reached by the apostles and elders who were in Jerusalem. So the churches were strengthened in the faith, and they increased in numbers daily. And they went through the region of Phrygia in Galatia, having been having been for, forbidden by the Holy Spirit to speak the word in Asia. And when they had come up to Mysia, they attempted to go into Bithynia, but the Spirit of Jesus did not allow them. So passing by Mysia, they went down to Troas. And a vision appeared to Paul in the night. A man of Macedonia was standing there, urging him and saying, Come over to Macedonia and help us. And when Paul had seen the vision, immediately he sought to go into Macedonia, concluding that God had called us to preach the gospel to them. 
So, setting sail from Troas, we made a direct voyage to Samothrace, and the following day, Neapolis, and from there to Philippi, which is a leading city in the district of Macedonia and a Roman colony. We remained in this city some days, and on the Sabbath day, we went outside the gate to the riverside, where we supposed there was a place of prayer, and we sat down and spoke to the women who had come together. One who heard us was a woman named Lydia, from the city of Thyatira, a seller of purple goods, who was a worshiper of God. The Lord opened her heart to pay attention to what was being said by Paul, and after she was baptized and her whole household uh, as well, she urged us, saying, If you have judged me to be, a, to be faithful to the Lord, come into my house and stay. And she prevailed upon us. As we were going to the place of prayer, we were met by a slave girl who had a spirit of divination and, and brought her owners much gain by fortune-telling. She followed Paul and us, crying out, These men are servants of the Most High God, who proclaim to you the way of salvation. And this she kept doing for many days. Paul, having become greatly annoyed, turned and said to the Spirit, I command you in the name of Jesus Christ to come out of her. And it came out that very hour. But when her owners saw that their hope of gain was gone, they seized Paul and Silas and dragged them to the marketplace before the rulers. And when they had brought them to the magistrates, they said, These men are Jews, and they are, distrib- dis- and they are disrupting or disturbing our city. They advocate customs that are not lawful for us as Romans to accept or to practice. The crowds joined in attacking them, attacking them and the magistrates uh, tore the garments off them and gave orders to beat them with rods. And when they had inflicted many blows upon them, they threw them into prison, ordering the jailer to keep them safe. Having received this order, he put them into the inner prison and fastened their feet in the stocks. About midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God, and the prisoners were listening to them. And suddenly there was a great earthquake, so that the foundations of the prison were shaken, and immediately all the doors were opened, and everyone's bonds were unfastened. When the jailer awoke and saw that the prison doors were open, he drew his sword and was about to kill himself, supposing that the prisoners had escaped. But Paul cried with a loud voice, Do not harm yourself, for we are all here. And the jailer called for lights and rushed in, and trembling with fear, he fell down before Paul and Silas. Then he brought them out and said, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? And they said to him, Believe in the Lord Jesus, and you will be saved, you and your household. And they spoke the word of the Lord to him and to all who were in his house. And he took them that same hour of the night and washed their wounds. And he was baptized at once, he and his family. Then he brought them into his house and set before them food. And he rejoiced along with his entire household that they had believed in God. And when it was day, the magistrates sent the police saying, Let those men go. And the jailer reported these words to Paul saying, The magistrates have sent to let you go. Therefore, come out now and go in peace. But Paul said to them, Have they beaten us publicly? 
uncondemned men who are Roman citizens and have thrown us into prison. And do they now throw us out secretly? No, let them come themselves and take us out. And the police reported these words to the magistrates. And they were afraid when they heard that they were Roman citizens. So they came and apologized to them. And they took them out and asked them to leave the city. So they went out of the prison and visited Lydia. And when they had seen the brothers, they encouraged them and departed. When Paul arrived at Philippi, it was a typical Roman pagan city. The people worshipped multitudes of gods and even the emperor. There was no synagogue there, so Paul went to the river looking for a place to pray. There was most likely no synagogue in Philippi because to have a synagogue, there had to be a minimum of 10 practicing Jews in the region. Um, After spending many days in the city and finding no synagogue to worship in, Paul and Silas went to the riverside, supposing to find a place of prayer. Here he and Silas find women who had met together to pray. And Paul and Silas began talking to the women and preached the gospel to them. One of these women was a woman named Lydia. She was a businesswoman from the city of Thyatira, a seller of purple. It was here that the Lord opened Lydia's heart to pay attention to what Paul was preaching, and she believed. Her and her entire household believed and were baptized, and this was the beginning of this small but mighty church. This tiny body began to grow, not just in number, but in power and faith as they watched God work. I believe the next new member of this church was a slave girl who was demon-possessed. She brought great wealth to her owners by fortune-telling. But this demon-possessed little girl annoyed Paul as he preached. So he commanded the spirit to come out of her, and it did that instant. This made her owners furious. Uh, Their little moneymaker was set free from bondage and made free in the power of the gospel. Freedom for this little girl, though, meant temporary bondage for Paul and Silas. Paul and Silas were attacked. They were assaulted and imprisoned because they dared to free a little girl from the claws of the devil and evil men. Don't forget, brothers and sisters, everything that happens on this earth is for the good of the church. And Paul and Silas going to prison is a wonderful example of this. They were falsely accused and wrongly given a sentence of prison by a kangaroo court. Then they were handed over to the jailers, placed in chains in the inner inner courts of the prison. This prison was not like the prison system today. There were no human rights in this time. No comforts at all. No color televisions, no mattresses. There was no bed, no light, no food, no fresh air. Only dampness, darkness, smells of raw sewage, and cold chains. I read where these chains and handcuffs and leggings were not like what we use today. Uh, These prisoners were uh, chained and they were stretched and pulled apart like a wishbone on Thanksgiving Day. There was no getting comfortable in a Roman prison. 
But this was the good will of God, and Paul and Silas knew that. It is evident because rather than decry their situation and demand their rights as Roman citizens, they worshipped the Lord. This must have had an impact on the others in the prison because none of them tried to escape when the earthquake shook the prison and opened the cell doors and loosed their chains. Convincing prisoners to stay put, however, was not the reason Paul and Silas went to prison. There was a man there that God, <coughs> excuse me, that God had called from before the foundations of the earth to be his own. That man was the jailer. When the jailer saw that the prison was wide open and the chains dangling empty, he assumed the prisoners had escaped during his watch. So he drew his sword to do to himself what was prescribed to happen by law to anyone who lost a prisoner. Immediate execution. But just in time, Paul cried out <clears throat> and stopped him and told him that they were all there. Amazed at all of this and moved by the Holy Spirit, the man fell down and asked them, What must I do to be saved? Not only did the jailer believe in Jesus, but so did his entire family. These people were the next new members of this growing body of believers at Philippi. And this is just the introduction to give us context so that when we read uh, this epistle, we are reminded just who Paul is writing to. When we, read that the joy has, when we read of the joy that Paul has for this church, we know some of the people that he is thinking about. So let's get started. and Let's turn back to Philippians 1. And let's take a look at verses 1 and verses 2. Paul and Timothy, servants of Christ Jesus, to all the saints in Christ Jesus who are at Philippi with the overseers and deacons. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Paul begins this joyful letter by telling his recipients who it's from. Sometimes I wish we did that today. <laughs> Sometimes I wish I didn't have to go to the end of the email to see who wrote it. Uh, I wish you would just tell me right up front. Uh, it is believed by biblical scholars that, the, uh, that this epistle was written 10 to 12 years after Paul had left Philippi. Timothy had joined up with Paul and Silas and was present with them uh, when they were at prison. Here Paul associates Timothy with himself. This is Paul's way of encouraging this young preacher. He is telling the church at Philippi, that Timothy is on the up and up. Paul tells the church that Timothy is like a son to him in the next chapter. But the most important thing about Timothy is not his relationship with Paul, but his relationship with Jesus Christ. He, like Paul, is a slave of Christ. Paul, this father in the faith, is writing to the saints in Christ Jesus who are at Philippi. These are saints because they were made saints by the grace of God, and not because they were made saints by men. They didn't have to perform a miracle to become a saint. They became saints because a miracle was performed by God. He gave spiritually dead people new life. This is the greatest of all miracles. Paul says that they are saints in 
Christ. What does it mean to be in Christ? When you put your faith in Christ, the Holy Spirit of God makes you a new creature. You become the temple of the Holy Spirit who dwells in you. The Holy Spirit baptizes you into the body of Christ, and you are made a saint by the Holy Spirit of God. This is what we call regeneration. These saints were at Philippi, but they were in Christ. Being in Christ is so much more valuable than being at any location at any time in all of history. Paul also addresses the local church officers in his greeting. The word overseer simply means shepherd. These are men chosen to watch over the flock of God. And a deacon is referring to spiritual men who are performing a secular service for the church. See Acts 6, 1 through 7 to see the kind of work that these men perform. Verse 2, grace and peace to you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Grace and peace are in all of Paul's epistles. Grace was the Greek word used for greeting in the secular world. In the Greek language, it is the word charis. In the Bible, it refers to unmerited grace of God. Charis is a Greek word full of meaning. In some instances, it denotes undeserved effect, or excuse me, undeserved actions of love and compassion from the heart of the giver. Luke 1.30, Mary found favor with God. The most important use of charis in the New Testament is the phrase, the grace of God, referring to the unmerited favor that God grants to sinners who are being regenerated. Titus 2.11, for the grace of God has appeared that offers salvation to all people. In Paul's letter, the word peace always comes after the word grace. In Hebrew, it is the word shalom. It comes out of the religious world, referring to the peace that comes only from God. The name of Jerusalem means the city of peace. Jerusalem, a city that's been a center of war for thousands of years, actually means the city of peace. But until the Prince of Peace returns, it's just a name and not a reality. And that's how it is with us. Uh, listen to Romans 5, 6 through 11. For why we were still weak, at the right time Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though for, perhaps for a good person, one would dare even to die. But God shows his love for us in this, that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Therefore, or since therefore, we have now been justified by his blood, how much more shall we be saved from the wrath of God? For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by his life. More than that, we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. In our unregenerate state, the Bible says that we are all enemies of God. Praise God that while we were enemies of God, we were reconciled to God by the death of His Son. This grace and peace comes only from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Verses 3-6 through six. I thank my God in all my remembrance of you, always in every prayer of mine for you, all making my prayer with joy 
because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. And I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Christ. This brings us to the body of this epistle. Paul says that he thanks God for this church every time he is reminded of them. Every time someone mentions this church to Paul, God, Paul thanked God for them. He never says this in any of his other letters to any of the churches. Verse 3 really sums up the heart of this letter. This church brought joy and a heart of thankfulness from Paul to the Lord. For Paul, praying for this church brought joy. Why? They were faithful to the gospel. They never faltered from the very first day. Paul was so sure of the perseverance of these saints that he actually says, and I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Christ. Church, listen for just a minute. This letter to the Philippians is the living, God-breathed word of our Lord. This letter is not just for the church of Philippi 2,000 years ago. This letter is also for the church today. So when Paul says in verse 6 that he is certain that God will finish the work that he began in us, he will do it. Our good works don't save us and make us right before a holy God. And our good works cannot keep us saved. Salvation from beginning to all eternity is only and always the good work of the triune God. God is the one who saves. <clears throat> and He is the one who keeps those He saves. If you think anything good in you made you attractive enough for God to desire you and want to save you, you make God a liar. There is none, <coughs> excuse me, there is none who seek after God. Listen to this from Psalm 53. The fool says in his heart, there is no God. They are corrupt, doing abominable iniquity. There is none who does good. God looks down from heaven on the children of man to see if there are any who understand, who seek after God. They have all fallen away. Together they have become corrupt. There is none who does good, not even one. And how about this from Isaiah 64.6? We have all become like one who is unclean, and all our righteous deeds are like a polluted garment. We all fade like a leaf, and our iniquities like the wind take us away. And Ephesians 2, 1 and 2 reminds us that we are dead in our sins and trespasses. Ephesians 2, 1 and 2 says this, And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, <clears throat> following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience. And listen to this from John, from Jesus in John six forty four. No man can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him, and I will raise him up on the last day. Brothers and sisters, these and many other verses prove that salvation is not us choosing God or us getting ourselves right so that we can be acceptable to Him. 
Salvation is pure grace. And brothers and sisters, if you think you could ever do anything to lose your salvation, you make God a liar. Jesus said that no one can snatch you out of my hand. Listen to this from John 10, 27-30. My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. I give them eternal life, and they will never perish, and no one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. I and the Father are one. We are saved not by anything good in us, and certainly we are not kept by the absence of anything bad in us, because he who began a good work in us will bring it to completion at the day of Christ Jesus. Verse 7. It is right for me to feel this way about you all, because I hold you in my heart. For you are all partakers with me of grace, both in my imprisonment and in defense and confirmation of the gospel. <coughs> Brothers and sisters, where better <coughs> to hold your Christian friends than in your heart? Why hold them there? Because of our fellowship with them and the grace of our Lord. Our true Christian friends encourage us to defend the gospel. Our true Christian friends are there for us in the good times and in the hard times. They encourage us to keep going and trusting in the Lord's plan. They are a friend who sticks closer than a brother. Our true Christian friends, like Paul's Christian friends in Philippi, share in the proclamation of the gospel of Jesus Christ. What sweet communion, what joyous yearning. This little church <clears throat> shared in the gospel and it made Paul yearn for them with the affection of Christ. This brings us to verses 8 through 11. For God is my witness how I yearn for you with all the affection of Christ. And it is my prayer that your love may abound more and more with knowledge and all discernment so that you may approve what is excellent and so be pure and blameless for the day of Christ filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. Paul is praying here that our love be fortified with knowledge and discernment. We are to love our enemies and do good to those who hate us. We are, to, we are told by the Lord to turn the other cheek when we have been slapped. We are commanded to love one another within the church. But church, this, this is not a blind, godless love that Paul is talking about. Love is seeing a brother or sister lacking and helping supply their need. Love is at times confrontational, calling a brother or sister to repent of sin. Love, fortified by knowledge and discernment, is seeing a brother or sister lacking and supplying not just their immediate need, but also teaching them to supply their own need and in turn teach somebody else. Turn with me to Psalm 78. <clears throat> I think Psalm 78 pretty well sums up what I just said. 
Give ear, O my people, to my teaching. Incline your ears to the words of my mouth. I will open my mouth in a parable. I will utter dark sayings from of old, things that we have heard and known that our fathers have told us. We will not hide them from their children, but tell to the coming generation the glorious deeds of the Lord and his might and the wonders that he has done. He established a testimony in Jacob and appointed a law in Israel, which he commanded our fathers to teach to their children, that the next generation might know them, the children yet unborn, and arise and tell them to their children, so that they should set their hope in God and not forget the works of God, but keep his commandments, and that they should not be like their fathers, a stubborn and rebellious generation, a generation whose heart was not steadfast and whose spirit was not faithful to God. This type of love abounds in preaching the gospel to the lost, hurting, and hell-bound world. The world will hate us for this message. Uh, the world will try to twist our words and make us look like fools. The world will hate us for sharing the good news that Jesus bore our sins in his body on the cross and that he endured the full wrath of God on our behalf to satisfy the righteous justice of God. The world only wants to experience shallow love. And this, this kind of love is offensive. This kind of deep, deep love offends the world. Verses 12 through 18. I want you to know, brothers, that what has happened to me has really served to advance the gospel so that has become known throughout the whole imperial guard and to all the rest that my imprisonment is for Christ. And most of the brothers have become confident in the Lord by my imprisonment. They are much more bold to speak the word without fear. Some indeed preach Christ from envy and rivalry, but others from goodwill. The latter do it out of love, knowing that I am put here for the defense of the gospel. The former proclaim Christ out of selfish ambition and not sincerely, but thinking to afflict me in my imprisonment. What then? Only that in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is proclaimed, and in that I rejoice. Guys, the gospel spreads even when we are in chains. What some men mean for evil, God means for good. Everything that happens in all of creation is under the control of our sovereign Lord. It is happening for the good of the church and for the glory of God. Listen to this from uh, the 1689 London Baptist Confession of Faith, chapter 5, paragraph 7. The providence of God in a general way includes all creatures, but in a special way it takes care of His church and arranges all things to its good. Verses 12 through 18 are a perfect example of this. Paul is thrown into prison because of his boldness in preaching the gospel of Christ. So what does he do? Does he demand his rights? No. Does he complain about the food or the chains? No. Does he decry the lack of basic human rights? 
No, no, and no. He rejoices that God placed him there and is using him to advance the gospel. Not only was the Lord using Paul directly, but indirectly. Paul's confidence in the Lord made others confident in the Lord, and they boldly preached Christ crucified to their communities. For some reason, bravery is contagious, and the Lord used the bravery of the Apostle Paul to infect the others around him with courage. Brothers and sisters, it is a priority in our life. Make it a priority in your life to be around godly and courageous people. People who love the Lord with all their heart, mind, soul, and strength. And watch out for the thrill-seeking, egotistical preacher that proclaims Christ out of selfish ambition. Be courageous in the Lord and tell the gospel to the world. And like Paul, rejoice that the truth of Christ is proclaimed. Verses 19 through 20. Yes, and I will rejoice, for I know that through your prayers and the help of the Spirit of Jesus Christ, this will turn out for my deliverance. As it is my eager expectation and hope that I will not at all be ashamed, but that with full courage, now as always, Christ will be honored in my body, whether by life or by death. If God is sovereign in all things, and He is, if God is all-knowing, and He is, if God is all-powerful, unchanging, and ever-present, and He most definitely is, why pray and ask the Lord to act? The answer to that, saints, is this. God is the one who supplies the means to the end. We are told and we are commanded to give the gospel to all, pre all people so that those who are the Lord's can hear and respond to the call of our Lord. The Lord has chosen all whom he will save, and he has chosen to save them through the means of the church, proclaiming the good news to all people. Though many hear the gospel, only his sheep respond to his call. John 10, 27, my sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. God supplies the means of preaching the gospel to reach the end, the salvation of his people. Prayer is yet another means to an end. God, by his good pleasure, has chosen to respond to some things by the prayers of his saints. So saints, pray. Pray without ceasing. There is nothing so big or difficult that God cannot accomplish it. And there is nothing so minute or small that God will ignore it. Pray for your elders. Pray for your deacons. Pray for one another. Pray that the lost would come to faith. Pray for the prodigal to come to his senses. Uh, pray for the sick to be healed. Pray for our nation to repent and return to God. Pray that in all of these things, God will be exalted. And this brings us to verses 21 through 26, which I believe are the, the Apostle Paul's philosophy of life. For me to live is Christ and to die is gain. If I am to live in the flesh, that means fruitful labor for me. 
Yet which shall I choose? I cannot tell. I am hard-pressed between the two. My desire is to depart and to be with Christ, for that is far better. But to remain in the flesh is more necessary on your account. Convinced of this, I know that I will remain and continue with you all for your progress and joy in the faith, so that in me you may have ample cause to glory in Christ Jesus because of my coming to you again. Verse 21 is Paul's philosophy of life. To live is Christ. Paul has told us what this looks like, and he restates it again in verses 24 through 26. We don't know our future any more than the Apostle Paul knew his. But he did know this, that living for Christ while in the flesh would not be easy. But in verse 22, he says that it is fruitful labor to remain in the flesh. But to be with Christ, he says, is far better. Paul loved the Lord, and he also loved the church. He loved them both enough to be willing to be in chains for them and to be beaten for them. Paul had served the Lord and suffered much in serving him. He loved the Lord. Now, as he is getting older, he knows that he will soon see him. Paul longed to look upon the one who had blinded him on the road to Damascus. He was eager to be in the presence of the one who put a thorn in his flesh. Paul desired to rest safely in the arms of the one who had shipwrecked him many times. Why would anybody want to be with someone who has brought so much pain and suffering? This is what the world asks, and this is what young and immature believers ask. The answer to this is simple. To live is Christ, and to die is gain. What is gain? Gain simply means more of the same thing. Paul says that to live is Christ, and to die is more of Christ, and is to be with Him. Church family, I am convinced from Scripture that the most important thing in my life and the most important thing in your life is Christ in us. It is not how well we can teach or preach or work or love, though these things are important. The most important thing about me is not me. <clears throat> the only thing that I can say about myself is that I was dead in my sins and trespasses. But praise be to God for His indescribable gift. Praise be to God that while I was still a sinner, Christ died for me, redeemed me, sanctified me, and one day will glorify me. To be absent from the body is to be present with Christ. And that is the best thing. Dear one, today, if you have come to understand that you are in desperate need of a Savior to do for you what you cannot do on your own, I plead with you to run to Jesus. Repent and believe in the finished work of God on your behalf. Let's pray.